0: This is the third week of this series called Faith with Friends, and uh, you can see I got the uh, short abridged version of the uh, message video, I think, because I'm not as attractive as the other pastors, but that's okay. Um, we're going to talk tonight about, uh, about an aspect of, of Faith with Friends, and as I was thinking about what this series means to me, I really... I really got to thinking that it has to do, faith with friends really has to do with just sort of a survey of, of the Christian faith. A survey of what it means to be a believer. Uh, so each week we kind of just say, hey, uh, this is what faith with friends looks like. And we're doing this through the framework of a book of the Bible called 1 Peter. Uh, and so we're specifically saying, okay, what does faith look like through the filter of First Peter. Uh, And this week, we're really going to be looking at faith with friends as a faith that follows. So what does it mean to to follow? I think that, I think in our culture, we kind of get the idea of of following. and, And the reason I think that is because I could tell you probably within five to ten people, how many Twitter followers I have, I could also tell you within a certain percentage how many people I follow, uh, the same goes with Instagram, same goes with any sort of web 2.0 social media thing, we live in a culture of following, don't we? Like we follow people, they follow us, we tell them the meaningless things that go on in our life, they tell us the meaningless things that go on in their life, hey I just had eggs for breakfast, awesome! Awesome! And occasionally something meaningful come, comes through. But, but that's the culture we live in. It's a culture of following, at least in a, in a sense following. I was reading a book this week called Revolution 2.0. And it's a, it's a book written by the guy who sort of started the pebble going down the mountain that turned into the stone going down the mountain that turned into the avalanche that was the revolution in Egypt from a couple years ago. And basically this guy just got fed up with what he saw in his country, the injustice and the terror that the, uh, the state was instigating on people, and he started a Facebook page. And soon that Facebook page just blew up. And I think at one point they were staging a protest. He sent out a Facebook invite that reached somewhere like half, uh, 500,000 people. And 27,000 or 50,000, I don't even remember what the number was, accepted the invite. You know, and I don't know if like, have you ever had a party and sent out a Facebook invite and like you sent it to like 60 people and like eight say yes? And and what that must mean like what would it mean to like have like fifty thousand people say I'm coming, you know I was thinking like you'd have to be like honey you better bake more dip because there's fifty thousand people coming to our house, Um, but that's the culture we live in. It's a culture that gets following in some sense of the of the word, and so we kind of understand it. The other thing, the reason I think we kind of understand. Uh, faith with friends is a faith that follows this, I actually think E3 talks about it quite a bit. You know, there's two ways to understand faith. There's the way that just says, look, I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to get into heaven, and I'll see you when I get there, Jesus. Don't bother me in the meantime. Versus a faith that says, I understand that Jesus is on the move. I understand that God is on the move. And and faith isn't so much me signing my name on the dotted line as it is signing on to a movement and signing on to just watch this guy, God, and watch this guy, Jesus. And where they go, I go. And I don't get out ahead. I follow behind. And I feel like we do our best at E3 to talk about that aspect of faith. So I'm going to assume for tonight that we kind of understand that faith with friends is a faith that follows. I think the critical question for us and the critical question for me, however, is what does following actually look like? And if we understand that our faith is a faith that follows, well, how do we define following? Do we make it up as we go along? Or is there something to the faith that we can say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that, that Peter, the author of this book, has strong, strong ideas of what faith following Jesus actually looks like. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to now. But uh, before we do that, I actually want to invite us all to pray before I start talking, just to kind of center us in and uh, invite God to, to teach us. So if you guys would bow your heads, I'm going to pray for us all. And I invite you to pray for me silently as you do that. Because um, I need it. Uh, Father, we, we invite you into this space. And not just the physical space. We invite you into the spiritual space of our lives. And we ask you, God, to shape us now and teach us. We ask you to help us submit ourselves to your word, to the scriptures, and to your Holy Spirit. And God, for, for, uh, for us who are coming from such different places tonight, Lord, I pray that we would all gather around you, that you would be the center. We would look to you for hope, for encouragement, for direction, and Lord, I pray in your graciousness that you would provide those things to all of us, God. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just strip away any pretense I have, and I would just tell folks what I've seen and what I believe, and in that, God, that some good may come. Lord, we invite you again into the space of our lives. And God, I I pray that you teach us and and just stay with us. Amen. All right, well, uh, 1 Peter is is a letter. Simple, straight, and forward. It's written by Peter, who was an apostle who spent time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I, I think that, for me, it's very important to understand why these letters were written. Uh, They were written to specific communities, in specific places, at specific times, that were dealing with specific things. We learn from these letters. They change our lives, but they weren't necessarily written to us originally. And so what we know about the church that Peter is writing to is it's a persecuted church. And Mark alluded to this last week where he said, you know, the, the culture is moving the Roman culture is moving to a place where Christians are eventually going to become physically persecuted, thrown into the arenas by a Nero and another emperor called Domitian. And it's moving that way now. But the first persecution that the Christians are feeling is what they would call social persecution. I always find it interesting that in this culture, Christians are, are considered pagans. Did you know that? Christians are considered pagans because they don't believe in the gods that everybody else believes in. They don't sacrifice to Jupiter or to Zeus or to Mars or to all these pantheon of Roman gods. They say, no, there is one God, his name is Yahweh. He sent his son Jesus who died and was resurrected. Everybody in the culture said, you people are crazy. You're pagans. You don't believe the things that we do. And what do we do to pagans? What do we do to people that don't share our beliefs, that, that decide, decide to, to take on beliefs that are far outside the norm of culture? Well, we shun them. We push them to the side of culture. We don't want them influencing our, our schools or our institutions. So Christians, were be, being pushed to the side because they don't conform. They don't believe the right things. They don't do the right things. They don't say the right things. So the church is already being socially persecuted. And so essentially the the, the letter of 1 Peter to this church is a letter that says, this is how you exist in the midst of adversity. So the things that Peter says, he's saying to people who are struggling who are looking out at the culture around them and realizing that the people looking back at them do not wish them well. That the people looking back at them do not have good thoughts towards them. And Peter is saying, this is how you live out this gospel, and this is how you follow this man named Jesus in this culture. So that's the kind of overarching paradigm that we're dealing with. What I want to do is take, you, take us through four, essentially, movements, four conceptual things that Peter does that I think tell us how to follow and what the implications of following looks like. The first uh, sort of concept that Peter deals with is, the, is what it means to live in a political structure, what it means to live under authority. So I'm just going to read this section of text and make a couple observations. Peter starts this way in verse 13 of chapter 2. For the Lord's sake, he says, respect all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free. That you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. So Peter basically starts off by saying, Look, there's a king, there's an emperor here, and you need to respect him. Now, uh, the last time I checked, we are in an election year, are we not? The last time I checked, the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years of our country has become increasingly politically polarized. If our guy's not in office, you know, if, if, uh, if now if our guy's in office and we're like, why can't you people just support him and respect him? Peter here right out says, you have to respect the king. This king has no favorable view of Christians. I can't say that more, I can't say that clearly enough. Peter knows who the Roman emperor is. And he does not like Christians. And Peter says, you have to respect him. But he moves on and he gets more specific. And I would say he gets more subversive. And he pushes on our boxes even more. And it starts off in verse 15. Peter writes this. He says, it's God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people... ...who make foolish accusations against you. What Peter is doing here is playing off a really important concept in the ancient world. With the phrase, your honorable lives... ...Peter is is getting at a certain concept in the ancient world... ...whereby people pursued honor. Honor and status was one of the most important things to a person in the first century. What people thought of you. How well you were recognized... In the world, and one of the ways that people would do these do this would be to perform acts of sort of public uh, public contributions, so that people would know who they were. There was no central government to make things. And what I mean by, like, all the infrastructure that we take for granted, you know, everything from, from water lines to electricity. I mean, there's no electricity, but all these infrastructure things, there was no one to build them in the ancient world. So you know how they, you know, they came about. Wealthy individuals would provide them. And they were happy to do so because of the honor that they would receive in exchange. So in other words, you know, say we're living in, a, in, a, in Tallahassee and, and we recognize, oh, you know, we need like a, a source of water. We need, we need some way to get water here. And somebody steps up and says, I will build you at the time like an aqueduct. I'll build you a way to get water in a Tallahassee. And, the, and the, the people would say, thank you. All you have to do, you know, is name it like the Dan Meyer Honorable, you know, aqueduct. And that would be like something that that was sort of on the top of your agenda in the ancient world. Well, what Peter is doing here is saying your honorable lives need to silence those people who are making accusations against you. What Peter is saying is that you still need to pursue good things and do good things in the midst of this culture that is persecuting you. It's not enough. I think we all get the Jesus Sunday school answer. When you're persecuted, you're you're what? You're supposed to turn the other cheek, right? But Peter Peter says, go beyond that. Don't just turn the other cheek. Get out there and contribute and make something that people look at and go, whoa, I still think those Christians are, are crazy. I still think they're pagans, but they're doing such good things contribute. Don't just passively accept persecution, but go beyond that. And then he goes another layer deeper. He says, for you're free. In verse 16, yet you're God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. You see, Peter believed, as I believe and as we believe, I would think, that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was set up as the king of the world, the king of the universe. He was established that way. He was proved that way. Peter knows that the ultimate authority, his ultimate king, is a guy named Jesus. But he's saying that you can't just use Your allegiance to Jesus, who is higher than the Roman emperor, who is higher than the president, who is higher than any government official. You can't use your freedom because you have this higher allegiance to do lousy, nasty things. That if you're going to call yourself free, you use your freedom to do good things. And that flies in the face of sometimes when we're persecuted, when we feel like life and the culture and the world is turning against us, what do we do? We wanna take that culture down. We wanna see it burn. We wanna see it go over the cliff so that we can get all our people around us and get the culture that we want around us. And Peter says, ah, 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 you can't do that. You're free. You only have one allegiance, it's to Jesus, but you use that freedom for good things and not evil. And he's still not done. He goes to this last verse in verse 17. Peter says, respect everyone. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God. Respect the king. All right, I want to deal with three concepts there. Three kind of things not in order. The first thing he says is, love your Christian brothers and sisters. And for most of us, that is plenty. That's plenty of work. Because I'm like, I don't, Peter, I don't know if you know where I go to church. But it's a little bit hard to love everybody. Peter says, do that. Peter says, fear God, respect the king. And that's intentional language. God is the only one to be feared. Even if the king's out to get you, you fear God before you fear the king. But you respect the king again. But then the phrase at the beginning of this verse. He says, Respect who? Everyone. Respect only the people that share your beliefs? No. Respect only the people that like your color of political party? No. Peter says, "Anybody who's out to get you. Church, you're in a culture of adversity. Church, you're in a culture that's being persecuted. Guess what? You respect them those you throw your arms wide open. Even in the midst of hatred, you throw your arms open and say, I want to hear more about you. And so Peter starts off by saying, this is how you exist under an authority that dislikes you and is out to get you. Then he goes on, and he unpacks a specific relationship from the ancient world. He, he talks to a group of people uh, who are slaves. And, and before I, I get into this, I've I, I felt led to say this. And it's kind of like a duh thing, but I'll say it anyway. The, the, the passage that we're about to read about slaves was used for hundreds of years to tell African American people like why they should stay submitted to, to people that were enslaving them. And as a as a person who likes to teach the Bible, I, I'm so angry that they misused that, this scripture this way because it's not what Peter's talking about. Um, I'm so sorry for that. And there's people who are going to read this and they're going to see the word slaves and they're just going to be, I'm done. They can't hear what, what's going on. And that's understandable because of the pain that has been uh, done to people over the years. But there is something here that Peter's getting at. And, and it, it starts with this idea that first century slavery didn't look the way that we know it in this continent, in this country. It had differences that, that explain a little bit about what Peter's talking about. First of all, it was not racially based. The people in the ancient world didn't look at the color of a person's skin and go, bam. You're a slave. It didn't work that way. Everybody uh, from from any, any sort of ethnic background could find themselves in a situation of slavery. But it was not temporary. It was not temporary. It was usually for some specific period of time often associated with financial difficulties. And in fact, you could improve your status through slavery. Uh, People who weren't Roman citizens, if you became a slave for a period of time and paid debts, you could be released with Roman citizenship, which enabled you to do a whole lot of things that you couldn't do before. And then lastly, uh, slaves in the ancient world had actually indirect power. If you were the slave of a high-ranking official, you actually could exert authority in in the world in their name. So this is the situation Peter is writing to. And he says this, that you who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. And just keep in mind that that's the type of slavery that Peter's talking about. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. So again, people who are in adversity, people who are being oppressed, who are being persecuted, Peter is still saying you have to respond with patience and with good things. Now, do I believe that that just means that anybody who is being oppressed, anybody who's being hurt, that you just take it? No, I don't think that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think God hates oppression of any kind. I think God hates persecution of any kind. But I think what Peter is saying here and what we'll see is that Peter is saying there's a difference between confrontation and retaliation. That you can stand up and say something is wrong With this system, people are being hurt that you can do this without retaliating personally against a person. And Peter drives this point more in the next section. But the, the concept is this, you have to bring honor to the gospel first. And I don't know about you, but when I get wronged, my first thought is not to bring honor to the gospel Things get personal for me real quick when I feel like I've been wronged. And very quickly, I decide that I want my justice. I want my standard of right done. But Peter is saying here is that what we need to seek is the honor of the gospel before the honor of ourselves. And all this is leading up to this next section where most people think that these next verses, verse 21 to 25, are actually the heart of this letter. That are actually the the theological and the conceptual heart. Everything before the letter flows into it, everything after the letter flows out of it. It's a statement of, of deep, deep spiritual identity. And it reads like this. Peter says, God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges Fairly, This is the heart of the matter. This is when Peter strips off all the pretenses and he lays it out as plainly as he can. If you are suffering, church, if you're in adversity, you have to bear that the same way that Jesus bore it. And he does it through two phrases that are in the text. Paul says that Jesus is our example and that we have to follow in his Steps, and the language that he actually uses there is very, very specific language for for the concept of example. Um, I don't know if you guys remember when you were kids, or if you have kids when you were learning to write your letters. Did anybody ever have like the notebook paper that actually had the letters on them, and you write, and it even tells you like with my son, it even tells him the direction the pencil is supposed to go. You know, up and down, little arrows. Well, the word that Peter is using here, for example, is that word. It's that image. Because in the ancient world, kids learned to write the same way. They were given these wax tablets with letters inscribed on them. And the kids would copy the letters exactly. And so Peter is essentially saying, when you are following Jesus and you encounter suffering, You don't make it up at that point. You follow Jesus' example and you follow it exactly. You look at his example and you trace it. You don't make it up. And then he goes on and he says we're supposed to follow in his steps. And and usually when you say you're going to follow in somebody's steps that's one of those words that's not really meant to be literally literal. If you were following somebody's steps going down like, you know, walking down Park Avenue and you were literally like walking like that, like the person would be like, what are you doing? But that's exactly what Paul is writing or Peter is writing in the text. The, 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 the image is not that we're just following after Jesus, not that we're just kind of vaguely saying, well, I think Jesus is going this way. I think this is how we're supposed to suffer. The image is that it's, There's his step. There's his step. So I step in his step. I step in his footprints, one after the other. Again, when you encounter suffering, we don't improvise then. Peter says, there is a way to suffer, and Jesus tells us. So if we just kind of take a pause and kind of see where we're at, what does following look like in a faith with friends? It looks like the cross. It looks like the cross. And that is incredibly significant. Because when I suffer, even sometimes when I'm not suffering and I'm following Jesus, I prefer to make it up. I prefer to improvise. I prefer to just go, I think I'm just going to wing this one, Jesus. And Peter says, that's not the way this thing works. We see it in the text. If you want to know what cross-shaped following looks like, it's in the text. Cross-shaped following first expects suffering. Jesus was sinless. And he got his share of suffering and more, did he not? So expect suffering. And when it comes, you don't retaliate. You don't plot revenge for when this is over and I get the power. And you have faith in God's justice. You know, on the other side of suffering comes resurrection. And and at the end of all of this suffering, I believe the end of the story is that God's going to come back one day. And when he's going to look at all the persecution in the world and he's going to look at the injustice and he's going to look at all the evil that people, are going to, that people have been doing and he's going to say enough. And sometimes suffering, cross-shaped following just says, I'm going to take a lot more faith in God's justice than in my justice that I want right now. And where did Peter get this idea? Where did Peter get this? Because maybe if Peter made it up, we can just not pay attention to this part of the Bible. Unfortunately, Peter didn't make it up. Peter was told this by Jesus. Peter was told that this is what following me is going to look like. Uh, And he was told it in in the Gospel of Mark. I find it interesting that a lot of scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is a record of Peter's teaching. So if you were in the first century and Peter walked into your church, you would have heard the Gospel of Mark, which would have been a really long sermon. But it would have probably been pretty cool because, you know, it was Peter and everything. And in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your what? And follow me. Remember, guys, remember what the cross was. The cross was the worst way to die in the first century. It may have been the worst way to die ever since, but it was definitely the worst way to die in the first century. You were stripped naked. You were bound or nailed to a cross. You could not cover yourself. You just sat there and suffered for hours. Your death took hours. And then, when you were dead, you were left until there was nothing left of you. And this was all done on a public street. Let's say North Monroe in Tennessee. Where everybody could see your shame, your crime, your punishment. And Jesus says, you want to be my follower? That's what you got to take up. Take up the worst thing that you can imagine and embrace it. And Peter says, and when you embrace it, and when suffering comes, you endure it without insult." without revenge, without retaliation. This is a hard gospel, is it not? <laughs> I don't do this well. I stand up on this platform, and I hope you guys don't think that any of us are some kind of spiritual Superman because we're not. This is just as hard for us as it is for you, but it's the gospel. It is the, the model that we're supposed to walk it's the it's the road of the cross. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Brennan Manning and he says it this way that when we decide to take up the cross that we walk The road to Calvary. To follow Jesus is to take the high road to Calvary. Littered along the Calvary road will lie the skeletons of our egos, the corpses of our fantasies of control, and the shards of self-righteousness, self-indulgent spirituality, and unfreedom. That's not your best life now. That's not be all you can be. But this is be all that Jesus wants us to be. This is somehow... The way life really works. And when Peter, so when Peter says to a church that is suffering. That Jesus is your example. This is what he means. But there's more. There is something that is so profoundly beautiful in suffering. And Peter alludes to it at the end of this passage. And it's this. That Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Here's the way I would say it, that sometimes suffering is redemptive. That when the world, even the world that hates you, sees cross-shaped suffering, they take notice because they know that's not the way they do business. So when they see people who decide to forego revenge, forego insults, forego retaliation and just take it, they stop and they go, I think there's something different there. They're not playing by the world's rules. What's up with that? Redemptive suffering. I was told a story of redemptive suffering in the face of persecution years ago. And i just kind of share it with you right now. There was a guy named Michael Weiser. He was a Jewish rabbi. And that's a picture of him more recently. But in the late 80s, early 90s, he moved his family to Lincoln, Nebraska to become the leader of a synagogue there. One night the phone rang and the rabbi picked it up. He said, hello. And on the other end of the line, a voice said, you're going to regret ever moving here, Jew boy. And that kicked off a season of phone calls for the Weiser family. A season where every night a certain man would call, that man's name was Larry Trapp, and he would call the Weiser home, and when they would answer, he would spew white supremacist, neo Nazi hatred over the phone. And what do you do? You know, uh, Michael, Rabbi Weiser. I'm sure didn't know exactly what to do, but he just basically told his family, be gracious to him. Do not respond with hate. Do not respond with yelling. Just be as loving as you can. Because what's crazy is that everybody in Lincoln, Nebraska knew who Larry Trapp was. They knew who he was because hatred was his thing. He was a grand uh, dragon in the KKK He was uh, wheelchair-bound because of some illnesses. He was almost blind. He lived alone in an apartment surrounded by hate literature. And that's what Larry Trapp did. He called people that he didn't like and yelled at them over the phone and intimidated them and threatened them. And this went on for months and months and months. One time, the rabbi called a hotline that Larry Trapp had set up. And it was 10 minutes Ten minutes of this hatred. And at the end of the ten minutes, you could leave a message. So the rabbi left a message. And he just said, hey, Larry, I just want you to know that there is a world of love out there. If you would just choose to look for it and embrace it. That changed nothing. The phone calls continued. One night, Larry called. Same things happened. Um... But in the middle of the phone call, the rabbi said, Hey, I heard I heard you're in a wheelchair. Do you need a ride? Do you need a ride to the grocery store so you can get some food? Just to get out. And and he stopped for a second. Larry trapped in. And he said, No, no, I don't don't need one. I don't need one. Phone calls continued. One night, Larry broke down on the phone. And he said, to the rabbi he said I am trapped in a world of hate and I don't know how to get out and this set off a new season of relationship between these two people and I want to tell you the end of the story the story ends like this the story ends with the Weiser family inviting Larry Trapp to live with them in their home because Larry had nobody And it also ends with Larry renouncing the the KKK and going out and preaching and talking to people against hatred. And all of that happened because in the face of persecution and in the face of hatred, one man decided to say, we're going to respond with love here. We're not going to insult back. We're not going to retaliate. We are going to to respond with something that resembles the agenda of the God of the universe. Suffering can make a hating world sit up and pay attention to you. And that is incredibly meaningful to me. That suffering can change lives when it's shaped like the cross. I actually want to end... um, end this way, because as, as I was reading the passage just this morning, I, I was struck by a certain phrase that that uh, is repeated. And um, I just decided to kind of pay attention to this feeling inside of me, and, and I have to believe that in a community like this and in a room this size, there are people who are just saying, you know what, this is very real to me because I feel very persecuted right now. That there are people in this room that would say, I feel like there are people out there who don't wish me well. And I feel beat up and I don't know what to do and I've been trying to suffer in silence. And um, so what I want to do is actually ask us to bow our heads and I just want to kind of read this passage of scripture to you, for you. And then uh, I'll pray and and Evan will, will close us out. The scriptures say that if, you, if, uh, if you're doing what you know is right and enduring unfair treatment patiently, then God is pleased with you. So if you are here tonight and you have been betrayed by somebody who is very close to you and you feel stabbed in the back, and you have wanted to retaliate, and you have wanted to uh, insult back, but you have refrained, I want to tell you, God is pleased with you. If you have been passed over for a promotion because of your values and because you refuse to compromise on what you know is right. And furthermore, you have refused to speak bad about the people that have passed you over. And you've endured that. I want you to know God is pleased with you. If you are part of a a group at school and your friends are pressuring you to behave in a way that you know is not right, and when you refuse, you're made fun of and you're cut out of activities and you're mocked, and you were so tempted to respond in anger, but you haven't, you need to hear God is so pleased with you right now. To any of you, any of us who are suffering and wondering, how long, God? But you're trusting in God's justice. You need to hear God is pleased with you. He is with you. He is with us. Heavenly Father, I pray that these would not just be empty words, but that we would experience comfort And a deep seated belief that the God of the universe is pleased with us when we patiently endure suffering. Father, sometimes we look at our culture and we go, Our culture hates us right now. Lord, would you give us the courage to love it and to suffer the persecution at times the same way Jesus suffered in silence? knowing that you are in control and knowing that suffering can be amazingly redemptive. And God, for those of us who have been suffering a long, long time, Lord, we still pray for relief. We still pray that it would end. Uh, but until that time, God, we just pray for friends who would help us walk another step of the journey. And Lord, may our suffering, if it happens, be meaningful. And may your kingdom come, God. But may your will also be done.